Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to release the rage valve and let fly. The podcast where our historians definitely don't leave without a fight. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as ever, with our very own underground saboteur, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. We are sounding so enthusiastic tonight, Kyle, aren't you? Yes, I'm, I've, been, I've been looking forward to this episode. This is a subject dear to my heart. So yes, let's get, let's get on with it. Let's go. This is audio, not video. Sound enthusiastic. Yes. Well, this week, right. dear ragers, we are diving back into World War II and the, not so much the home front, but a very close to home front. One of our many forgotten theatres of mm. war. So to take us on this short hop nearly across the channel, we welcome Channel Islands historian, resident and independent company stalwart and to date the only guest we've had on who is also a patreon subscriber hint to the rest of you we welcome nick lahure nick welcome to history rage thank you guys thank you and well done for getting my uh the pronunciation of my name right i know that was bothering you as i mentioned i pretty much answer to anything as most people who've met me at the war fest etc will uh will tell you I oh, know it's important, though. I get, you know, Bavel, Bovel, Bavil, God. Um, yeah, so it, it, it drives me up the wall. It's Carl. Kylie. No offence, but I bet they're disappointed when you turn up and they find out you're not Kylie. Unless they were looking for mm. Kylie Minogue to yeah, deliver a lecture yeah. on SOE in Crete, in which case they got twice what they bargained for. <laughs> So, Nick, let's start by getting to know you a little bit, because I know you from Twitter, but our paths haven't officially crossed until today. Um, So can you give the guys out there a beginner's guide to you and how you are involved in the history of the Channel Islands? Sure. Um, So I was born and raised in the Channel Islands. Um, I'm an accountant for my sins, uh, an auditor, no less, which I, I think gives me some of the skills that are actually quite good for for doing research, for delving into the archives and sort of following up leads and seeing if there's anything behind them uh, or whether it just leads to a dead end or, or you know, something that's not not really correct. Um, and I've been collecting, obviously, having lived here, uh, you know, I've had relatives um, that talk about it, uh, friends of the family, you know, just lots of people that, that I've encountered over the years, um, some of whom lived here throughout the occupation, others who ended up being evacuated, um, others that were born in the UK during the war uh, because their parent, the parents had been evacuated. Um, and I've also been collecting things uh, over the years. And I was, you know, I frequently talked to or talk to slash bore friends of mine down the pub with, oh, you never <laughs> guess what I've, I've found or or whatever. And people started saying, you know, you really need to do something with this. You know, you'd, you're keeping all this information to yourself. You should do something with it. And I was just kind of 
well, I have really got time. I've really got time. Didn't really think that many people would be interested. Went to the first We Have Ways Festival, and a couple of people collared me to talk about the occupation of the Channel Islands. So I sort of thought, oh, actually, there's a little bit of interest. And then a few people said, you know, you should do something. So I agreed to, you know, I said, okay, I'll do a blog and see what happens. And I, I seriously thought it will be two or three blog posts. Nobody will be in the slightest bit interested, you know. 20 people will read it to humor me. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then, you know, it'll all go away. And uh, the other thing that I, I was quite wrong on was oh, it won't take long to knock up a blog, blog post. Be pretty, be pretty quick. Uh, yeah, foolish boy, <laughs> very foolish, <laughs> very very foolish boy. Oh, uh, and now, just over a year. Well, when did I start it? December twenty one was when it first went live. First real article was uh, early January um, twenty two. Uh, and I've got, uh, as, as it stands, about 805 people who get the email that goes out every time there's a new blog post, uh, various Twitter followers, etc. And I'm up to about, um, I think it's just short of 18,000 people who have looked at the website. Good God. Uh, Good Lord. It shows you how these things can just grow and grow and grow, doesn't it? It does. It does take up a lot of time, but I must, must, must admit, I do really enjoy doing it. Yeah, and uh, to be fair, you'd only spend the rest of your time doing accountancy, wouldn't you? I would, yeah, so it's clearly yeah. clearly it's better than that. I mean, one, one of the other things that's come out of setting up the blog, which I probably wouldn't have got, is that I've I've managed to help um, a few people with things that, that, that won't be appearing on the blog because they are very personal to their families. But they, mm-hmm. they you know, asked if I could contact me through the blog, having read some of the posts, and said, look, you know, we've got this mystery about what happened to a member of our family during the occupation. We've got no idea how we go about finding out if there's any information about what happened. Could, you know, would you mind helping us? And actually, that was, you know, that's happened a couple of times now. That's really rewarding, actually, because mm-hmm. being able to find that information for them and give it to them is, is really good. I also helped um, uh, some people who uh, they're great-grandfather had been a slave worker here and had been forced to come here by the Germans. They were Dutch and they contacted me to ask uh, for some information and I was able to go and find that in the local archives for them here, um, as well as go and take some photographs for them of areas where he would have been working, things like that, which they were were, were very yeah. pleased to get. Well, well done. That's, that's breathtaking stuff, you know, making difference to, to real people in real lives. Yeah, it, it certainly beats yeah. boring them to death by talking about, you know, concrete bunkers, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> hey, never underestimate the power of concrete bunker porn. <laughs> okay, so we've, yeah, we've taken then sort of what, what is your, what is your great love and your driving factor? But you know, from having listened to us before, what history rage is all about. So, so let's kick off the anger because I, they, not one, but two rages, uh, coming, uh, at you here. Yeah. So, would you please tell us what you wish people would just stop believing? Yeah, you've been very kindly and indulged, kindly indulged me um, with this one. But this, it's sort of a two-parter: the the myth that Churchill abandoned the Channel Islands, and also that there wasn't, you know, a fight, some form of resistance um, during the course of the occupation. Both of those really get on my wick, and they keep resurfacing time after time after time, and it's really annoying. <laughs> I can tell, yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, I mean, this has been this has been like a common trope. I was friendly. In fact, to be fair, it was only really reading your blog where I'd go, ah, resistance, eh? You know, because even people who are relatively mm. in the trade, like myself and Carl, will sit there and go, oh, yeah, it was just, it was just given up by given up without sure. fight so let's get into some details so we, we're going to start with Churchill yeah could I quickly throw in another sure. question that's not scripted um, just for our international listeners um, what is the exact relationship between the Channel Islands and the UK itself just so we're all on the same page yeah, sure. we, uh, this is a question further. that comes up very frequently and I really should actually just put a page on the blog which deals yeah. with it. So 
<laughs> when, because it, yeah. it gets misinterpreted quite often. So uh, the short explanation is we are not part of the United Kingdom. Uh, we are a British Crown dependency. Mm. We are part of the British Isles, uh, along with uh, the Isle of Man, Jersey, etc. So yeah, we're not we're not part of the UK. Our, our allegiance is to the Crown, uh, as the Duke of Normandy, rather than anything else. There is a massively complicated mm. constitutional relationship between the islands. Yeah. Basically, the UK is responsible for defence. Um, and I'm not qualified to talk about the legal aspects of it. You, you need to yeah. speak, speak to somebody else. But um, uh, so, I mean, one of the things that came out of that is uh, that Channel Islanders were not able to be conscripted. Uh, so uh, they could only be conscripted to defend the islands. Uh, they couldn't be conscripted to do anything else. Uh, the law was actually changed um, in May 1940. Uh, by which time most people of uh, age to go and serve in the forces had already left the islands to go and join up any, in any mm. case. Um, but it was changed at the request of um, the Guernsey government and, uh, and that was ratified by the UK uh, government. So they, they can't make laws for us without our consent, basically. So we're self-governing. Oh, oh I wish. I just <laughs> wish. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. So, Churchill. So, the big question. Yeah, the big question. Churchill. Winston Churchill. Um, what sort of decisions did he have to make regarding the Channel Islands during the Second World War? Yeah, sure. Um, what, what sort of factors did he have to consider? I mean, it was, it was quite a complicated situation, and it, and it was, of course, a fast-moving situation. Mm. So, Churchill uh, became PM early uh, May, May the 10th, I think it was, 1940, uh, mm -hmm. which was basically six weeks before the Germans arrived in the Channel Islands. There was, of course, Dunkirk and the fall of France. Uh, some of, of the uh, British forces did actually get uh, evacuated out through the Channel Islands, coming from the, the Cherbourg Peninsula. And he really didn't want to give them up. This is one of the things that really... You, you see these things frequently on um, history forums and things like that where uh, people say, you know, I just abandoned them, you know, just gave up. Now, I can kind of see where that came from if you were in the place of, of somebody in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, when you didn't have access to some of the information that is available now. If you go back and look... yeah. You know, and, and to be honest, if I was Mr. Lahire in Guernsey in 1945, 1944, I'd probably have been saying, you know, he abandoned us because you, you wouldn't have known any different, uh, purely because it would look that way, wouldn't it? It would, it wouldn't look great. It would, you know, it, it really wouldn't. And, you know, the things that he had to think about was obviously after the fall of France was, well, we've got to defend England, but they, they, they actually debated if you go through, uh, the war cabinet papers, um, you know, they, they debated what to do about the Channel Islands sometimes three times a day. Uh, and, mm. uh, and in fact, they changed their mind about what to do frequently, uh, sometimes, you know, reversing a decision that they made earlier in the day. Um, there was one case, there's uh, one meeting in, in the morning where they decided that maybe they'll send two battalions to the Channel Islands to defend them. Uh, and by just after lunchtime, when they meet again, they change their mind. That's a really bad idea. Frankly, it would have been a really bad idea. Um, uh, so, as I say, they discussed over and over until eventually 19th of June, when they had the meeting, which really sealed the fate of the Channel Islands in terms of what was going to be done. And e even at that meeting, Churchill was not happy you know, if you if you look at the um, if you look at the minutes, it says uh, there's a bit here actually. I'd like to quote: the Prime Minister said that it ought to be possible by use of our sea power to prevent the invasion of the islands by the enemy, and that if there was a chance of offering a successful resistance, we ought not avoid giving him battle there. It is repugnant now to abandon British territory, which had been in the possession of the Crown since the Norman Conquest. 
that to me doesn't sound like a man who wants to give up and abandon us. Um, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, and he, uh, you know, if you read the various papers around that meeting, the, you know, read the actual minutes himself, he eventually got talked out of it, but he really wasn't happy. And so they decided on the 19th that that was that. They decided to evacuate all British forces from the Channel Islands. Uh, they uh, recalled the two lieutenant governors, who are the Queen's representatives here in the islands, and they basically told uh, the bailiffs of the Channel Islands, who were sort of the, a difficult concept to, to explain. The bailiff's not a man that comes around with a big dog to repossess things if you don't pay for them. Uh, it's, it's basically the head of the judiciary and, and various other government functions. Um, so he chairs the meetings of our government a bit like the speaker, uh, in that, in that mm. respect. Mm. Um, so the, the two bailiffs, Jersey and, and, and in Guernsey were basically told, do you sort of do your best, uh, was where, where that was left with them, <laughs> which, you know, that's clearly not the position they expected to be in, um, at that time. But one of the other things, I mean, that that you can argue sort of proves that he hadn't forgotten about the Channel Islands was, you know, 30th of June, the Germans land in Guernsey, 1st of July in uh, in Jersey. He orders the first commando stroke spying mission to the Channel Islands on the 2nd of July. A chap called Hubert Nicol, um, who was a Guernseyman, was briefed on the 4th of July uh, and actually landed on the 8th of July. And the whole reason for that mission was to find out what was going on. Churchill wanted to know what was going on, how many Germans are here, what's happening, how are they treating the people. That that was directly ordered by by him, that raid. And later on, you know, there, there were a total of 11 commando raids that took place um, during the course of the war. There were many others that were planned, but called off for various different reasons, uh, not least being with Channel, channel weather and um, things like that. Probably talk about those a, li- a little bit later. Yeah, am I right in thinking that eleven commando raids into the Channel Islands isn't that more than we actually did into the desert? Quite possibly. I'm not sure on that stat for the desert, but yeah, there were there yeah, were. Really- it doesn't strike me as a man that wants to give it up if you're constantly sending your commandos over. There, yeah, absolutely. It? And the, I mean, the other the other thing was. Um, you know, there, there were, as well as those sort of small scale raids to gather information, sort of annoy the Germans, take prisoners was the plan. Uh, everybody's heard of Operation Basel, which was October 42, um, or, or most people anyway, which was the raid on Sark, which triggered the commando order, uh, and led to, led to the guys from, who were captured at Dieppe being chained. But there were, there were loads of others. There was, uh, Operation Dryad. Uh, Branford and and various others, um, uh, but lots. They also went as far as planning some really large scale stuff. So there was yeah. there was Operation Attaboy in February to March nineteen forty one. That's a good name. Yeah, it is, isn't it? They 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 picked some good names. <laughs> uh, there was Operation Blazing in March to May forty two, which they got quite a long way uh, through that one. Uh, Hadrian again in summer forty two. Uh, an Operation Constellation in March 43, uh, where they actually contemplated trying to retake Jersey. And when you see what they were going to use to do that, it would have been an absolute disaster um, for the Channel Islanders because they were talking about using 16 squadrons of uh, heavy bombers for two days before they tried to land, which when you're on 45 square miles of an island with nowhere to to go, yeah. you're going to be stuffed. Yeah. So I, I know you've been on Woody's World War Two TV uh, sure. talking commando raids on the Channel Islands. So just give a kind of like very brief, what were these raids looking to achieve? Yeah, sure. So they start they started out the first ones in 1940. So first one came over was called Operation Anger, which was uh, Hubert Nicol came out came over on his own to gather information, stayed for two days uh, and uh, went back and reported 
back. He was able to move around relatively freely because the Germans had only just arrived, hadn't really got organised, and there was only about 600 of them at that point in, in time. Uh, but handily for him, family members were, uh, one of them was involved with the harbour, and uh, another uh, was uh, partially involved with the, with the uh, temporary government. And also they had a contact at the uh, main food supplier here who was able to basically tell them how many, you know, how many soldiers there were, but based on the amount of rations they yeah. were asking for. Um, so that, that was the first one. Then we, uh, that sort of went into Ambassador, um, which happened. Uh, that was, frankly, a bit of a cock-up. Um, and it just went badly, badly wrong. Uh, they they were going to land about 144 men. Uh, some of the boats went in the wrong direction because the compasses went awry, uh, and it just it just went horribly wrong. And uh, after that, Churchill actually said, uh, "I don't want any more shows like that in in the Channel Islands." Uh, and you'd think that'd be it, you know, that's. You know, now the the interesting thing about Ambassador was it was it was kind of the the starting point of the Royal Marines uh, commandos, and but one of the interesting things yeah. is they formed it really quickly because uh, that operation happened also in in July, but nobody actually checked that anybody who volunteered for it could swim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you read the blog, see I. <laughs> This is this is why I find all this stuff fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so there, there there were a group of them that unfortunately couldn't swim. So when it came to leaving the island, uh, they had a bit of a problem. Uh, they had to fess up that that they couldn't actually swim. They were left behind to be collected by a submarine. Uh, they were actually hidden by a family over here uh, for a few days, but eventually uh, they had to give themselves up. Uh, but yeah, there were others as well. Um, you know, the, there's uh, an, another one in 1940 where uh, Hubert Nicol came back with a chap uh, called Symes, uh, and they, they actually hid out for I think it was about six weeks. In, in the end, again, you can read about it on the blog. Uh, they they mm. both uh, won medals for for what they did, but unfortunately, they, they had to get themselves up as well. Uh, with the consequence that. Uh, a number of those that helped, I think it was 13 in total, got arrested and deported to France to prison before being released in December 1940. But they, unfortunately, uh, Simon's father died whilst they were in prison. If we move away from Churchill for the moment and then get into the second part of your rage, which was that there actually was fighting. Sure. What's, what sort of resistance was going on throughout the Channel Islands, both at the initial invasion and during the occupation? And and how effective was it? Okay, so th- there wasn't any fighting itself because basically you, you're trapped on a 25-square-mile island like Guernsey and 45 square mm. miles in the, case of, in the case of Jersey. So there wasn't actually anything they could do when the Germans arrived. Um, there were no weapons. The, the British government had taken them all away when the islands had been demilitarised. Uh, a couple of historic guns that were from the First World War had actually been buried, so they weren't mistaken um, for um, you know something that could be used. But what happened was it it was a different type of resistance. So, yeah, um, Guernsey folk, you probably may have heard. Uh, have the nickname Donkeys uh, from our friends over in, in the other island in Jersey. Right. <laughs> it, Never get on with the neighbours. No, do no, well, yes, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's sort of affectionate. But uh, it's because we're quite stubborn. So the types of resistance that that grew up, it, it, they they threatened various things, which uh, you know made it very difficult. They, they they threatened that they would basically just pull out and then just bomb the islands. Out of existence, if the if the uh, population misbehaved, nice things like that. Whether they would actually would have done that, who knows? Um, so it's not you know the, throughout the the occupation there were small acts of resistance, which were were sort of very personal things. 
but still very dangerous. So uh, there was some there were some chaps that that fashioned badges out of coins with the king's head on, uh, which people used to wear to keep their morale up. But underneath the, your uh, collar of your jacket, and they used to, you know, if they saw somebody they were friendly with, they, you know, turn it over to to show them. Um, yeah. uh, unfortunately, um, uh, some of those chaps were actually were actually caught. Uh, you had people who used to uh, the, the the V sign was encouraged. Uh, or not by the government because it caused lots of problems. <laughs> but, uh, so you, you, you know, you get people going along chalking V signs on Germans' bicycle seats because one of the one of the main w- ways they used to get around the island was they they requisitioned a large quantity of the bicycles. Uh, so they'd go and chalk a V on the bicycle seat. The German soldier would go and sit on it if he didn't notice. Cycle off to wherever he's going, and then he's walking around with the V sign on his on his backside. Um, just. <laughs> That is so schoolboy. Yeah. It hurts. Uh, I mean, the, the, <laughs> they, they used to get painted on walls as well. In fact, there's a house that still has a uh, one that's been preserved uh, on, on the wall. In fact, there, there probably are more, but there's just one that that I am aware of. Uh, and that actually used to cause problems because the Germans Germans got very angry about that, and they used to try and hunt down whoever had been painting them on buildings. And they used to, uh, you know, try and punish people, particularly in Jersey, by making them uh, provide people of the neighbourhood provide, you know, men to go and guard buildings to stop it from happening. And whether that actually worked, uh, I, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, but then the Germans adopted the V and put uh, uh, put a wreath on it and tried to make it their own, but that still didn't really dissuade people from doing. It. Uh, other things that happened in terms of resistance. Well, I talked about the commando, you know, some of the early commando raids. People did help yeah. with the commando raids at great risk to themselves. And actually, um, the head of the controlling committee here was, was quite angry that, you know, the, the, the British were raiding at that stage because he didn't know, you know, they'd seen how the Germans had behaved on the continent didn't really know how the things were going to go here, how they were going to pan out. When uh, some of the commanders were in hiding, they threatened to take 20 of the most prominent people and either shoot them or take them away from the island, which was one of the reasons why Symes and Nicole decided to surrender. They had a bit of a problem because they were in uh, civilian clothing, uh, but uniforms were found for them and uh, they surrendered in uniform albeit they were not initially, uh, having initially been treated as being service personnel, then they were threatened with being treated as spies. They were carted off to prison in France. The other, the other thing, that things that happened, you know, in terms of resistance, there is a great story which uh, I'd not come across until uh, the nice folks at um, Jersey War Tours, they, they've got a, a brilliant uh, web page, uh, and they they fire out a newsletter from from time to time. And one of the things that I'd not come across uh, was, uh, and it's it's actually quite quite funny in a way. Um, that uh, in Jersey, the the Germans decided that the chap that was in charge of the airport, well, we'd better keep him on while we're using the the airport in Jersey. Now, keeping on an ex RAF officer to be in charge of the airport probably not the best idea. Um, and th- this this chap actually came up with a very cunning plan, and I'm, I'm just frankly amazed he got away with it for so long. Uh, but he had he ordered that the uh, grass runway should be cut very very short. Now this meant that it reduced the braking of the aircraft, uh, and uh, some estimates are hit you know, probably 22 aircraft were destroyed before he w- he was deported in. Uh, September 1942, when they deported a whole load of islanders that had been in the in the armed forces and things like that, but he got away got away with that the whole time, which is just incredible. Um, ne- never underestimate a, a a local official with a lawnmower and the power that they <laughs> yeah, have. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and and kind of going back to the stubbornness thing as well. So uh, you know, yeah, you, you had people that were forced to go and work for the Germans. The, the, there was no no choice. You know, they controlled every aspect yeah. of your life. Um, but it didn't mean you couldn't really, really not do exactly what they wanted. You could 
be a bit of a pain in the bum without really getting, uh, you know, so some of the guys didn't get into trouble for doing some things. I mean, the, the, there's mm. one story of, about um, some chaps that were basically sent to go and salvage a ship that had been damaged. Now, it, in reality, it probably should have taken about three months to, to, to salvage this ship. They managed to drag it out for nine and, and actually right up until the liberation. So, <laughs> so the, they prevented the, you know, the Germans from, from being able to use any of the materials from that just by, you know, being really awkward. And that's, that's another sort of way that people, people resisted. There were other things as well because radios were, uh, confiscated. So, you know, there was no way of getting, news from outside of the islands, which was one of the problems. The Germans controlled the local newspaper. Um, so it was basically, you know, they had to print what they were given. So uh, there were some people that hid radios. There were others that created radios, from uh, created little crystal sets and hid them. You know, th- that was very risky because if you got caught, um, you could be, you know, sent off to, to prison in France or sent to prison here. Uh, but two newsletters grew up um, through the through this through the fact that you know a lot of people couldn't access it. There was one called Guns Guns the Underground News Service, and they unfortunately got caught. But that used to be available. You could go to certainly. I know uh, Lloyd's Bank was one of the places that they they used to type up this news sheet, having listened to the BBC, uh, and it'd be delivered to various different places. Uh, Lloyd's Bank in the High Street, in the corner of Smith Street and the High Street here was one place uh, that if you knew the right person at the bank, you could go in and read it. One one of the libraries here, um, people always knew that it'd be in a certain book in the library. So they went and asked for that book uh, and things like that. So the the guys, unfortunately, from Guns, they got got caught. Uh, There was another one called Guernsey Active Secret Press, um, which uh, one of the tour guides here actually has, has written some quite interesting um, things about. They were lucky they didn't get caught. Uh, on our memorial for resistance um, here, there's uh, eight people in Guernsey and 21 in Jersey that are named on that for acts of resistance. Uh, those are you know people that died, basically, uh, due to um, what they were doing. Probably the yeah. biggest act of resistance in Jersey, certainly, um, I don't have the numbers f- for here, but in Jersey was um, sheltering escaped slave workers. So they, they brought in large numbers of uh, Russians, uh, Spanish, uh, various other nationalities, yeah. uh, slave workers who were kept in terrible conditions and beaten. And, um, you know, that's fairly well documented. Uh, but there were approximately in Jersey 200 people who were involved, involved in hiding escaped slave workers at the liberation in Jersey, there were about 20 that were still in hiding successfully. Um, there's actually a film when it's, uh, I'm not one to really recommend films about the occupation in the Channel Islands, unless it's a documentary that's made by um, somebody that's, uh, but actually is a, uh, there's a mainstream film uh, called Another Mother's Son, which is about uh, a lady called Louisa Gould, who hid uh, an escaped slave worker for quite some time. Uh, unfortunately, she was betrayed and uh, ended up uh, going to uh, a concentration camp where she died. But that's actually uh, that's a, a pretty good film, to be honest. If you if you're talking about uh, you know what happened from that point of view, there's other some other sort of reasonably amusing uh, bits of uh, uh, of resistance, if you were. Uh, there was a lady who who actually featured if you have a search in the British new, newspaper archive in sort of late May, 45, probably through most of the summer. She appeared in various newspapers. Uh, she was a lady called Winifred Green who worked in a hotel um, here. Uh, there was a Swiss chef at the hotel who used to greet her every morning by uh, doing the Hitler salute and saying, Heil Churchill, uh, Heil Hitler, she used to reply, hi, old Churchill, one day he got fed up and, and dogged her in and, and uh, she got sent to prison for several months, although she survived and was brought back to the island. Uh, but she came became known as Mrs. Churchill in a lot of the newspapers. Uh, but that, that was sort of one of the more amusing uh, ones. There was another chap who got arrested who 
was in a in a pub playing the piano, uh, and the Germans. Um, he 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 was actually he actually escaped later on in the war, but uh, he he was annoying the Germans by playing the piano. They said, "Will you stop doing that, or you know, or we'll shoot you?" Also, this very angry German. Uh, and uh, I've seen this from several sources, so I'm I'm thinking it's probably true. He's reputed to have said, "Yeah, let's have the national anthem before the shooting starts," which he promptly played the national anthem, and then they were all arrested. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was little things like that. Just that's proper Casablanca level of of heroism. Yeah, lots of little stuff, just pushing the boundaries, and uh, and of course, unfortunately, if you push the boundary a bit too much, you found yourself on on the the wrong end of the law. I mean, one of the things was the the Germans, you know, were so apt to arresting people and things. They ended up with a, at uh, at one point where you. You basically got sentenced, then you went home, and then they came and collected you, you know, however many months later when they had room to put you in the prison. <laughs> uh, if, if that was if you were going to be imprisoned here, if you were you know, going to be imprisoned in France then, uh, or Germany, then they, they tended to, to send you off. Um, the other major kind of act of resistance was, was probably, you know, you're talking the escapes again, which is something that you know, don't really, they don't really get talked about a lot unless you read academic books, mm. you know, or, you know, it is really those sort of things that there's some absolutely amazing stories out there about, um, uh, about those. Uh, again, the guys at, um, Jersey Waters have got a, a great bit on their page, uh, about two American POWs that escaped from Jersey, uh, which is just an incredible story. Um, but there, there were about 225, People that escaped over the course of the war, and yeah. what I what I like doing is um, what they were they were all interviewed. Well, apart from the ones that escaped in early 1940, probably from about September 40 onwards, uh, you can usually find MI19 uh, reports where they were interviewed. Uh, they asked them, you know, they're, they're very well documented. Although he seemed to struggle with Channel Island's names, so I've got one one chap who's recorded with three different names. He was interviewed by three different MI19 officers, but it is the same. It is the same chap, but they, they just can't get his name right. Um, they, they they get them drawing, you know, plans of what's going on. They ask them lots of questions yeah. about. I mean, I mean, some some of it is how should we put it? Uh, slightly sexist. They seem to ask. Uh, they seem to ask all the men what you know what's going on with the fortifications, what are the Germans up to with that, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then all the women, it's questions about you know food, things like that. Uh, what happens to the Germans if they uh, catch a nasty disease from the from uh, one of the brothels that they they, they imported uh, prostitutes from France? What happens to them if they get catch something and uh, to, to not not at all asking them about you know. Have you seen yeah. Have you seen any tanks or anything like that? So, um, but they're, they're actually quite interesting to read. Um, but they, they, they did get them to, to draw maps and stuff. And they, again, that was part of the intelligence uh, intelligence gathering. In Jersey, there was a place actually that, of course, after D-Day, it became perhaps easier to escape from Jersey because they were a bit closer to France. Um, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to come to liberation in a couple of times. But that there was a spot there that was known as the uh, departure point because it was used so many times. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Okay, well, we're going to flip the uh, we, we're going to flip the lid now. You know, following the resistance, uh, Kyle, you're going to go in with uh, today's controversy question. Yeah, I, yeah. So we've we've talked a little bit about some people who've been betrayed for their resistance activities. Um, who was doing the betraying? What sort of collaboration was there with the Germans? Yeah, sure. I mean, there there was collaboration. Some of it wasn't really active collaboration. So the example I gave earlier, you know, some people ended up having to go and work for the Germans because basically they were ordered to, and if they didn't, they wouldn't get any food or anything like that. So, um, you know, some people take a really harsh view that that is, in fact, collaboration. Personally, I think that's just you've got to do that. Otherwise, you were either going to end up with a position you wouldn't survive or you get deported to Germany or France and be locked up in prison there. So that, that, you know, in in my book isn't collaboration. There are some that, you know, take the view that the island authorities collaborated. Again, I'm I'm not really in that camp. They had basically been left holding the baby with, you know, do your best for the civilian population. If you read a lot of the, yeah. the papers, uh, some of the diaries have been published uh, and, and things like that. You know, they perhaps made on occasion the, the naive decisions because they didn't realise what the consequences of those things were going to be. So when they, you know, they asked for lists of people and things like that, they perhaps, you know, didn't realise what was going to happen to those people. But quite often, you know, even with, uh, as an example, if you take the, the deportations, when, when we had mass de- deportations, they interceded and managed to prevent some people from being de- deported. Uh, and and you know they, they basically save their lives by doing that because undoubtedly if they they'd gone to um, Germany uh, and the Germans had found out their background and things like that then they would have you know they 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 would have not not survived um, but unfortunately as I say they did make some decisions uh, one that is well well known is of course they they provided the list of of Jewish people but it, again it's hard to see what they could have done because, you know, you've effectively got a gun to your head. They're going to, the best they could have done is said, go and make your own list, but they would have, they would have forced people to do it. In terms of other, you know, active uh, collaboration, there's um, what some call uh, horizontal collaboration. Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) um, Which, yeah, um, which, you know, it was inevitable. You know, you've you've got an island with no men of military age, so it's just old people and you know a few remaining school children. And then, of course, you've got all these. You know, Germans are here. The war's going on for years, and you know these people don't know what's going to happen to them. Uh, particularly the Germans, and a lot of them fear being sent off to the Eastern Front later on in the war, uh, which is what happened to quite a few of them. Uh, you tend to find that the you know the German troops here initially were you know the 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 young you know good looking really you know I, I don't like using the word crack troops but you know that they they were your standard you know well trained fit troops later in the war yeah. you you're looking at you know people who've been injured uh, and and have been you know put on reserve duty or older troops so you know, well, relationships were formed, and and um, so you know, some carried on after after the war, uh, but that that you know, a lot of people took a dim dim view of of that. Then you had there were some people that actively uh, you know collaborated. I'm, I'm not going to mention yeah. any any names. Uh, I can imagine there's a few people who I know are going to listen to this podcast who will probably be shouting some names right now. Um, <laughs> Interestingly, there's a number of them that were the, I'd like to say, the most prolific, who were actually people who'd moved to the island from. There's one chap who got very, very wealthy, um, who came from Holland originally, um, and uh, and they they did you know profit from the Germans. There was an effort after the war yeah. to um, you know to to make them pay for for that. So that in 1946, a, a profit levy law was passed. I'm not really sure how successful that was, but there was, of course, the fact that it's a small community, uh, so people were shunned after the 
or for what yeah. you know for what they've yeah. done. There were people that settled scores, um, as you mentioned, by by you know saying, "Oh, so and so's got a radio set," because they'd had a falling out with them, um, or, or things like that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, there, there was that. But there's there's actually there's a, a really good book by Paul Sanders, um, uh, the British Channel Islands under occupation, and that really explains very in great detail the sort of different aspects of it and you know what and and, and sort of grades of collaboration okay well i'm going to lighten the mood a little bit now then uh because uh now we've got now, now we've got contributed question from uh one of our ragers ad bond i believe you uh I believe you've had yeah. that. I also believe that he's, he has put this question in specifically to set you off. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm going to go with it, but was the TV series <clears throat> Enemy at the Door fairly accurate in its portrayal of uh, relationship between Germans and Islanders? Three, two, one, go. <laughs> When I I just I just so knew it was like when I started reading this question on the Patreon I just so knew who had asked it and and that was confirmed when I got some options <laughs> and uh, you know I, I've said in the past you know oh, that was awful it was you know so I actually went back and I hadn't watched it probably for twenty five years and so, good reason I yeah I, I, I kind of I think it got repeated about twenty five years ago. And I've, I've kind of watched it. Um, but to be honest, actually, it wasn't as bad as I remembered. I, I think I, I, if you'd asked me 25 years ago, I probably would have been furious. But I, I actually went back and watched um, some of it in, in order to do this. And uh, I, and probably thinking about it, you know, but with a slightly more mature head, it was shown before the watershed, so they couldn't really show some of the stuff that went on. Um, it was filmed only 30 years after the war. So, uh, I mean, one of the big grudges that people here have was the first series was filmed predominantly in Jersey, although, although it was ostensibly in Guernsey, um, although they did come and film here in the, for the, the second series. Well, you lot are too stubborn. That was the problem. Yeah, probably. It? Yeah, probably. <laughs> we, pro- we were probably too awkward. But, they, yeah, they came here for the second series. Um, they also shot, shot some of it in the UK. But it, it's... Um, some of the stories, when you go back and look at them, some of the stories, although they've changed the names, as I say, only 30 years after the war, probably a bit sensitive about it. Some of them were sort of a combination of events and people. So you could kind of say, you know, there, there was uh, Dr. Martel's son comes back as a commando very early in the occupation. That could be Hubert Nicol, really. You know, that's, mm. that's that sort of thing. Uh, they had a raid which was that went wrong, commander raid that went wrong, and that was quite similar to Operation Ambassador, or, although it took place in a different place. But the, 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 a lot of the, a lot of the interactions with the characters are seem to me to be you know not that far off um, in terms yeah. of you know uh, dealing dealing with uh, people. Uh, one one little known fact about it is obviously um, I think pretty much. Most people who've ever seen it will know that uh, the chap from Heidi High is in it um, as one as one of the Germans. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, um, yeah, because I'm completely, completely unknown, completely unknown to me. But looking at it as we're talking, like that's that's the bloke from Heidi High, is, yeah, it? the manager from Heidi High. Yeah. And yes, it is. I can't remember for the um, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. Um, but but perhaps a, a little known appearance is that um, John Nettles, who went on to play Bergerac and various other TV detectives, uh, he appears in one of the episodes uh, as a, de- a detective that's um, investigating a case. Okay. And that would have, that would have been filmed nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine, something like that. Uh, so yeah, he only appears in one one episode, but. He features quite heavily in that one. So I think to sum up on that one, of it's it's not a bad effort. Um, Would you recommend it? I, I'm not sure it goes as far as recommend. I mean, it, it's it's quite uh, as entertainment. Yes, historically accurate. Well, not really, but 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 in some aspects of it are. 
but they're not, you know, I wouldn't encourage people to go around repeating that commando raid was true because it clearly wasn't. It was, it was an amalgam of several. Um, yeah. um, um, but you know, it was broadly based on, based on fact. And some of the other stuff is, you know, broadly based on fact. So, you know, I think it was a, a, a reasonable stab and it, I, I actually, it was a shame it got cancelled in, they'd got as far as 1943. If they'd got to 44, 45, it could have been quite interesting. Uh, but unfortunately, they were, London Weekend Television ran out of money. Yeah. So now to uh, uh, give a little bit of defence to London Weekend, because uh, and it kind of feeds into my question of would you recommend it? Because one of the things that first ever piqued my interest in SOE was watching Wish Me Luck. Yeah, yeah. Again, London Weekend Television, absolute kind of classic, accurate. Who knows? Filled with unnecessary melodrama and romance. Quite, what? Yeah. you know, but it does. It you know, it did. It did make me go, oh, you know, women spies. I'm off after that. And could you know, do is this a good thing for getting people interested in? Yeah, I'd say. I'd, I'd say so. I mean, it's it, it's worth it's worth watching. And then you, if you want to kind of get a little bit of background on what things might have been like, and and then you can go off and read a you know a decent book or watch some of the documentaries. Or a blog, yeah. I mean, you know, somebody yeah. fancies reading a blog. Um, that's one of the things I'm going to try and touch on is some of the more personal stories because um, one of the articles I wrote, which was about an English doctor who was here throughout the occupation, is one of the most popular ones on the site. It's been read loads. Um, uh, so I am going to do some more personal stories. But uh, people keep suggesting things, and, I, and I'll get, disappear off down a rabbit hole when I go and look at something and think, oh, yeah, I'll write about that. Um, so I'm sure you you guys are the same. Absolutely. So we hinted earlier about um, a, about the Germans towards the end of the war and how, come around 1944, things get an awful lot more interesting. Yeah. So I will grant you I am a reasonable beginner to Channel Islands history. One thing I do know is Liberation Day is the 9th of May 1945. Now, we pretty much have to sail past you to invade France. Yeah. So what the hell's going on on the Channel Islands as that armada sails past? Yeah, well, they they could see all of the aircraft going over. A lot of the aircraft that dropped uh, the American paratroops came basically down over the Channel Islands, despite, despite the fact that actually they had quite a lot of anti-aircraft guns here. But on, on, on D-Day, uh, there's several accounts where it appears they didn't open fire till about four or five in the morning. <laughs> I think they were just a bit confused about what was going on. But, um, the, yeah, so they, they didn't actually totally give up on trying to uh, trying to come here in 44, but effectively they'd created a prisoner, a large prisoner of war camp because the Germans couldn't really go anywhere yeah. after, after D-Day. Uh, in fact, the, you know, the first German aircraft to get in after D-Day was October 1944. Uh, uh, that made it onto the island, uh, and you know they tried to run a sort of air bridge, but it didn't really work. It's very in- infrequent, mm. which meant they became demoralised, hungry. They didn't have any leave anymore because before they'd been able to go back to, you know, back to Germany on leave. Uh, although even you know if you were getting to late forty three, uh, some of the accounts that I've seen from some of the German troops here, uh, you know they were they were saying you know I'm, I used to be able to go back on leave, but there aren't any trains anymore because the you know typhoons were zipping around Norm, uh, uh, you know around Normandy um, and other parts of France, taking out taking out trains in advance you know in advance of things happening later in the in uh, 1944. So they, that you know didn't happen. But basically, they looked at it and it was just too difficult to actually come and you know relieve the islands because unless the Germans were going to surrender, you were in for a fight. Uh, now, bearing in mind they'd stuck about uh, 10% of the fortifications, uh, I'm sorry, 10% of the concrete, uh, they went into the Atlantic Wall, is in the Channel Islands, um, you know, which is not a maximum amount of space, but they put that much in the way of fortifications here. Um, you know, it was going to be a tough fight. The problem that they had was they did actually try and get the Germans to surrender. Uh, they dropped leaflets. They actually um, sent a chap called Major Chambers who got the DSO, 
for what he did. He came across from France uh, on a boat and they had dropped a message for the German commander um, off of the coast here. Unfortunately, the Germans had completely missed this parachute dropping with a canister and whatever, completely passed them by for whatever reason. So they never got that message. Uh, he got as far as Cherbourg Point off of Guernsey and he then took the decision which he was against orders um, that uh, because the Germans hadn't turned up for the rendezvous, he was going to go to St. Peterport and see what we could find out. Got to St. Peterport, was intercepted by a German boat. He actually had a German general with him who had been captured in North Africa in 43. Um, and the German general was there to help negotiate. Uh, so uh, Major Chambers gets invited onto this German boat. Unsurprisingly, the German general not so keen to get onto a German boat because he was a bit worried about what might happen to him. Uh, <laughs> so he wouldn't get on. There was an exchange of messages backwards and forwards to um, to Guernsey, and basically they were told to go away. So they did. Um, but, you know, to, it was quite a heroic thing to to do. You know, he could have just been shot out. They could have been shot out of the water um, yeah. or, or just taken prisoner. Um, so he got the DSO for that. That was in September '44. Uh, but the Germans made it quite keen. They're clear they weren't going to uh, surrender. Uh, things got worse, actually, later on, uh, because in uh, February '45, uh, the commander of the Channel Islands changed, uh, and it changed to a chap called Hofmeier. Um, hopefully my German pr- pronunciation is <laughs> right, approximately there. And he was pretty nasty. He'd actually been in commander of the Bismarck at one point, uh, but he he was basically an ardent Nazi. Uh, he had a few rallies and things like that, saying they were going to fight to the end. He actually got a raid launched in March uh, 45, where they attacked Gronville, which was a raid that was launched from the Channel Islands. They actually brought back some prisoners. Quite funnily, they rescued some P- German POWs in Gronville, um, who uh, a large number of them promptly ran away before they could be pushed onto the ships to come back to the Channel Islands, because they knew what what the conditions were like, that everyone was starving. Uh, and so, you know, they weren't like, yeah, thanks for rescuing me, but I'm not having any of that. Um, <laughs> and, and legged it. So, as I say, effectively, it became a POW camp. They didn't want to risk the population here. They cancelled it for all the reasons that they cancelled the other big-scale operations. It was just not going not gonna to work. The cost in, in lives, both in terms of troops and and you know, the, the civilian population was just not going to work. So, and it it's also, not like the Germans could retake Normandy from the Channel Islands. Is no, it? exactly. Exactly. Um, um, Hofmeyer was interesting because he, he, he seemed obsessed for there's several accounts where he, he, he repeated the thing that, you know, that, that they'll come for us. They, they will come for us in terms of that, you know, they're going to be rescued by the, the remainders of Germany, which was just a very odd thing. He became a bit paranoid towards the end. He he was convinced that um, you know his men were going to shoot him and things like that. So he yeah. uh, there, there was allegedly one attempt to kill him. And, uh, somebody tried to. He used to walk walk to one particular place to get milk, uh, and somebody did try uh, apparently try and kill him, but um, did, obviously didn't work. Um, so yeah, he was he was pretty nasty. Uh, so yeah, he was basically made it clear that he was going to hold out uh, and not not surrender. Uh, Did the so, population do anything during that time as well? Uh, there frankly wasn't a lot that they <laughs> that they could do. You know that you, you know, varying points during the war. You know there were like one German to every three or four civilians. So, so you and they're all armed. <laughs> So, yeah, that's, that's some odds. Yeah. yeah. So you know you you've got nowhere you can get, and like I say, you you had no mountains to run off into or forests. Like you know you couldn't do like in France where you could you know uh, go and derail a train or blow up something and then leg it and be fifty kilometers away hiding in a forest where they're never going to find you. Yeah. Here, here yeah. they'd catch you pretty damn quick. So um, there wasn't a lot they could do. To be honest, after the um, Red Cross came uh, in. December 44, uh, and a couple of times after that, uh, the civilian population at least got some Red Cross parcels, which uh, otherwise, you know, lots of people would have starved to death if that hadn't happened. 
the Germans, of course, weren't entitled to Red Cross parcels. So they were um, basically, if your cat or dog was out, you were at risk of losing it because uh, they, you know, they, they'd just take it and, and eat it. Like the Germans couldn't get more evil. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, but they were eating things like limpets, which are, um, you know, sort of shellfish yeah. that nobody else would eat. Yeah. Making limpet stew and all sorts. I mean, don't get me wrong, the locals were having to eat all sorts of horrible stuff before, you know, as, as well. But, um, but in the latter stages, in that hunger winter, the, the Germans really were in a mess from that point of view. The, there's a chap that I wrote about on the blog, German soldier. He, he talks about, you know, they, they did two hours on duty, then they had to sleep for two hours because they were so weak. So, but, you know, the problem was, even if the British had known that, they still had massive firepower. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about Churchill already and the Churchill, the myth of Churchill abandoning the Channel Islands. Um, how is he viewed there today, these days? Yeah, I, I, think, I think, to be fair, he's had a bit of a rehabilitation as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, probably if you'd asked Mr. Lahira in 1944 mm. or 45, he'd probably been pretty hacked off. Um, uh, but I think o- over the years, as more information's come out, people, you know, there some great historians have written uh, about it, and there is more information out there. So, you know, the, the myth that's sort of been passed down has, has perhaps um, not, not as bad. I, I did a, a very unscientific poll on Facebook uh, and and actually, I was surprised by the reaction. I got I didn't go at all the way that I I thought it might because whilst um, you know if you speak to people in person, you get a much more measured response. Uh, I, I expected it was going to go horribly wrong, but actually it didn't. There were quite a lot of people that said, you know what, I, I think he just did what he had to do, um, uh, and and a few others and a, a few people that when they were corrected by myself or others on some myths that they mentioned, they went, all right, fair enough. Um, so actually, that that was you know, but but I asked quite a few people. There are still quite a few people that um, you know were school children here or or whatever that that I know, and I, I actually made made the effort to speak to a few of those over the last couple of months, and that their view has you know sort of changed as well. Uh, there's there's not many that now that say you know he abandoned us. It's it's only if you know they've not actually paid attention to any of the stuff that's come out over the last. Since the end of the war, yeah. I suppose if the bulk of people who are saying Churchill yeah. abandoned the Channel Islands don't actually live in the Channel Islands, you've probably got to look at that a little. <laughs> yeah, you have. Yeah, you have. Um, I mean, part of it in the forties was perpetuated because uh, Lord Portsea, who was actually a Jerseyman, was fighting in the corner of the Channel Islands in, in the House of Lords. He was absolutely furious. He was in his eighties, but he was. He was like, "Give me a ship in the in the House of Lords. Give me a ship. I'm going to go over there and and sort it out and all this." It was incredible. But he was he frequently in the newspapers and frequently in Churchill's face. You know, so um, that probably perpetuated a little bit. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Because that's been that's been a massive eye opener into an area of the war that's so close to home. We ought to know more about it. You know, and it's because I've I've always said to people, and whenever you get that count, and we raised it with Josh Proven, it's whenever you get that counterfactual of what would Britain look like if Nazis had won. Well, we we know what Britain would have looked like. You can go there, go and look at Guernsey. Um, so keep keep that flag flying, um, and we will encourage absolutely everybody out there to uh, go and read the blog. Um, we'll put links up to the blog, links up to the books that you've mentioned. Thank you, um, and. If everyone out there would like to know more, you can contact Nick and follow him on Twitter at uh, Nick LaH. And we will have links to that in the show notes as well. So once again, Nick, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you both for the opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And we'd love you to join the Angry Mob on Patreon, just like Nick here, as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you the early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.